Welcome everyone to another episode of Equals. Welcome from a beautiful day here in Nairobi. In fact, you can hear the birds chirping in the background. And this is our Valentine's special. This is Nabil. This is Max. Yeah, this is the Valentine's special. This is when we bring, well, start the experiment of bringing romance into the podcast. <laughs> and what a pleasure, Mr. Lawson, it is to do this Valentine's special with you. Yes, it's always romantic to hang around with you, Nabil. <laughs> but really, we're going to be speaking to two fantastic activists today. Two activists who found their love on the front lines. Yeah, two activists you met on the barricades. And they're not the only ones, are they, Nabil? Oh, well, Max, I, I did I did meet the lady who, who became my wife fighting far-right, fighting fascism, actually, on student campuses in the UK. But mine's not the only activism love story here, is it? Uh, yeah, I met, uh, met my wife. Uh, I was chairing a committee meeting that she attended, uh, which was very romantic. Chairing, romantic. Yeah, well, you clearly haven't seen me chair. <laughs> okay, so so really today we're going to be speaking to two fantastic activists. They are Njoki Njohu and Soren Ambrose. Let me introduce Njoki first. Njoki leads work to fight inequality across the African continent. She also leads Daughters of Mumbi, a Kenyan national NGO that's all about fighting gender-based violence and fighting for women's land rights. And Soren, her husband, is a, a key thinker in, in this business. He's someone that's influenced me heavily over the years. And he's the head of policy at ActionAid, international NGO. And, 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 and Njoki and Soren, they met, what, a couple of decades ago as part of the 50 Years is Enough campaign, which was all about, what, taking on the IMF and the World Bank? Not just taking them on, uh, abolishing them. So 50 years since the IMF and the World Bank were formed, it was time to close them. Goodness me. And, and, I, and I understand, Max, he used to be very scared of Njoki. Really scared of Njoki and pretty scared of Soren as well, to be honest. Um, I mean, I think it's fair to say we were often on opposite sides of debates in those days. Well, nothing a cup of tea and a podcast interview can't solve, eh? It was a lovely interview and they're such a fantastic couple. Brilliant. Let's get to it. Njoki, Soren, thank you very much for inviting us into your home on this pleasant Nairobi evening. And uh, and thanks for joining Equals. Thanks for having us. We're excited to do this. We're hearing today your amazing individual stories of, of activism. But there's obviously your coming together as activists as well. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and, and really being there for one another on the front line. I'm interested to hear, as we are in our Valentine special, how did it all come together? Where did you meet? How did it work out? Oh my God, we met in a, a literally, we met in a meeting of the 50 Years is Enough campaign. Soren had moved from Chicago to DC, um, and we used to have steering group meetings where people, we had a, we would have a speaker phone, you know, there was no Skype back then. Yeah, no internet. I, I, yeah, yeah, so we would Sounds have a speaker phone that people would call into and you know and so so while we were waiting I think he Yeah, so Jokey and I were the first ones to the meeting. We were both early. And Jokey was I'm, early. I'm not sure <laughs> I'm not sure but I do think it was the last time she was early for a meeting. <laughs> oh my and God. if I recall correctly it's because she got the time wrong. Oh yeah, that would explain <laughs> Oh go ahead, besmirch my name. But anyway we got talking and 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 then after the call um, Soren mentioned that he had just moved to to DC and that the day before had been his birthday. And I'm really big on celebrating birthdays. So it was like, you know, so what did you do for your birthday? It's like, you know, I mean, this is now in a conversation with everybody. And it's like nothing. I didn't know anyone here. 
and we were oh no we must all go for a drink and we went to the washington post pub which was around the corner from where the 50 years is in our office and as i was leaving i gave soren um and i because i part of it was that i knew what it was like to move into a new city where you didn't know anyone but i i also just just want to say that i think for me having a partner uh a spouse who like really great support and 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 understanding and um you know because i think sometimes in relationship there's tension because you you bring your work home or someone or the other person brings their work home yeah. and there's not an understanding of what it's about but you know my crunch time is often his crunch time that i think is one of the things that um i really appreciate uh about being married now what 23 years and, and i think we complement each other well in that I'm a bit of an introvert and, and jokey, if you haven't already figured it out, is more outgoing. Um, and uh, so, you know, jokey does the speaking, does the community relations, and I kind of uh, uh, figure out what's going on policy-wise. And that's how it worked at, at 50 years. And uh, sometimes that's that's still the character it takes on. Certainly, I haven't gotten any less introverted since uh, since we met. Just recently, the former president of Kenya, for many years, uh, President Moy, died. And Joki, I think I'm right in saying that you, your upbringing, and particularly your mum, you suffered considerably. And your mum was very close, worked really closely with Wangari Maathai, the Nobel Prize winner, environmentalist. I know you were, were really involved in that, weren't you? So my my mum was very involved with the Greenbelt movement and with Wangari Maathai from the very beginning. And as uh, as the Moi government um, came down hard on Wangari and on the Greenbelt movement, um, you know, there were all these other people who were in line. So, for instance, when Wangari was arrested and 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 uh, hurt in prison, in jail, and ended up in the hospital, my mother, they, they paid for my mother to be in the next bed with her. And as she says, she left to go into that bed having said her goodbyes, not knowing whether she would come home or not because, you know, there had been experiences of people being disappeared, being killed and mm. all of that. One of the very well-known politicians, opposition politicians, uh, uh, Kenneth Matiba, actually had a stroke because he was he was... They were detaining him. He had a stroke. They didn't treat him. And it completely, you know, uh, uh, I think they said for a week they did not give him any treatment for the stroke that he had. And, of course, that had lasting impact on his health. So, um, but, yeah, Moi has died this week. And there's a lot of whitewashing of his um, of his legacy and of... You know, there's this video that everybody keeps say playing where he says in 2012, if if I ever did anything, you know, uh, if if you if you have insulted me, I forgive you, and if I've said anything to hurt you, also please forgive me. But the the truth of the mm. matter is that he did more than just say things that hurt people. In fact, if he wants, I have said, and I've written about this on social media, if he wants to be forgiven, and if people, the people who are supporting him and kind of putting this alternative uh, story about who he was and what he did for this country, if they want to do that, they need to embrace his whole 
um, whole legacy. His whole legacy. Mm. People in this country lived in terror. You would get into a matatu, which is something that the, like the millennials can't understand. You would get into a matatu, and nobody would talk. People literally believed that anything you said would get to Moi, mm. like in the next, you know, five minutes or something. I don't even know. There were rules about how many people could be together. Unless it was a funeral or wedding, you were not allowed to have more than eight people together without a permit. So it, it's all kinds of things. You know, so I'm talking about when we came in 1997 and um, we had gotten married in the U.S. My, neither of my parents had been able to come. So we were having this luncheon that ended up having like, you know, I don't know. How many people do you think there were? 200. Like 200 people at my parents. And I later came to understand there had been a conversation about whether they needed to get permission like the uh, you know from the chief to ha to have this because it wasn't exactly a wedding right like it, wa mm. it, it, didn't it was like fit. a reception yeah. it was more like a reception and at that reception was Wangari Madai and uh the then member of parliament for my constituency who was a um, family friend extended family member uh Paul Moite who was like the lead lawyer who represented a lot of the people who... I thought they decided he shouldn't come. He was supposed to come. They, you know, in the conversation is yeah. when they decided that he, he shouldn't come. So, yeah, because um, if they had two prominent people, yes, then they it would was, draw more attention. Yeah, mm, but but true. but that was the Kenya That's that we... That's was in those days. No, it was, it was terrible. It was mm. absolutely terrible. Let me add and also say that uh, as part of that, it literally... You know, I, like it was like being on call twenty four hours, twenty four seven, because you know when Gary could be arrested or you know anything raids would happen. You know, uh, yeah. so you had to you had to make sure that before somebody gets grabbed and disappeared, that you have raised the alarm. So I had. You know, Bella Abzug, who was a very well-known uh, feminist leader in the U.S. with We Do Women's Environment and Development Organization. I had Algos number. I had all these numbers of people where I would get a phone call sometimes in my dorm room at some, you know, for part of that time I was in college, I would get that call. And then I would make a call or a couple calls and begin get things rolling. So, you know, I remember the one time when they were trying to arrest Wangari and there was like 200 police officers outside her house in South Sea. Like they had come to arrest yeah. this woman. She was barricaded in the house. So I get the phone call and I remember Al Gore, then he was Senator Gore, making a speech on the floor of the U.S. Senate and saying this was happening now. And it was, it was, it was the one way in which to ensure that you know, she didn't get arrested, disappeared, oh. and and never heard from. So let me take this. Let me take this from the top, like by winding winding the clock back now, twenty twenty five years, in what seemed to be a very exciting period for activism. In reading about you, these days we're trying to reform the IMF and the World Bank, trying to influence it. But am I right? You were trying to take them down altogether. Yeah. No. The the. Um... The 50 Years is Enough campaign was a campaign that uh, around the 50th anniversary of the World Bank and the IMF were, were saying a little bit like what we've been saying about abolishing billionaires, that you can't afford these institutions. They are harmful. They, their track record has 
um, has not been that great. You know, everybody listens to them. Everybody thinks that they're the, they're the smartest and have the best, um, uh, they have the best economic advice, but that, that our world was not and still is not doing so well economically in spite of their, um, their advice to countries, to every single country in the world. So, um, this 50 years is enough campaign started in 94 or well, a little bit before that, but it was actually building on, on years of campaigning on debt, on structural adjustment programs, on, uh, on cuts in education and in health. And so, and the environment and the environment, not, uh, big, not big dams. Yeah. Stuff, yeah. Right? There was a lot of, yes, the big dams that, uh, the World Bank had been building all over where, communities were being drowned out, people were being forced out, you know, mm. and all of that. So it was it was really uh coming together of of campaigners in communities and people in, in northern countries working to get their governments, you know, to to do the right thing. And there were a lot well, maybe not ninety six, but a little bit later, there were really significant protests against the World Bank and the IMF. I mean Paint a picture for us. I mean, there, there, were, there were quite, I mean, there were thousands of people used to turn up to demonstrate. Yeah. I think the the sort of the height of it uh, coming from Seattle in November 1999, uh, there was real momentum. And in April 2000, we had more than 30,000 people, you know, show up to demonstrate against the World Bank and the IMF, uh, which was much broader in terms of, the participation of people from all over. It was quite exciting times. But but let's be clear, in the in the late nineties we had many demonstrations of twenty five or fifty people in front yeah. of the IMF as well. So, oh, so it wasn't all things. No, no. This, <laughs> so this, this is a reality. This took check. a while to build. Um and and the Jubilee campaign that was global uh, or going global at that time uh was a big part of that. Um but it's important to say that the environmental movement uh, was a bulwark of the movement against the World Bank in particular. And at the same time, we have to remember at that time, trade was a very big concern. Um, you know, with the Bretton Woods Conference, where the World Bank and IMF were founded in 1944, there was a proposal for an international trade organization as the third of those institutions. Mm. American, uh, I should say, opposition in the U.S. Congress put an end to that idea until 1995, when the WTO was formed from the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, GATT. <laughs> and Soren and Joki, I'm very interested to hear that, you know, you said it started out with 10, 15, 20, 25, 50 people outside the IMF and the World Bank. What is it you, what is it that you saw that grew that protest movement into the thousand, into cities worldwide, into what was a global campaign? that eventually won successes with governments? Well, I think there was a lot of organizing that, that happened. The 50 Years is Enough campaign was interesting in that even in the U.S., there were chapters. Um, but I think that there was also a real, uh, one of the strongest, let me just say that one of the strongest arms of the 50 Years is Enough campaign was uh, the Catholic Social Justice um organizations and you know there was yeah yeah there was even something called the religious working group on the world bank and the imf one of my favorite (laughs) stories was a campaign that they did when 
on debt, it will say that it would cost Americans pennies to the dollar to cancel debt. And so there was this campaign, the idea that let us send pennies to the U.S. Treasury to tell them, here are my pennies, cancel the debt. Mm. And the U.S. Treasury called the chair of the religious working group on the World Bank and IMF and said, tell them to stop sending us pennies. <laughs> because by law, they actually had to count and, and, and acknowledge these pennies that they were getting from, <coughs> from people across the U.S. And they had to to acknowledge, count, and account for them. We did speaking to us. I traveled a lot speaking in church basements and union halls and college campuses. It was quite amazing. The whole idea of economic justice in the United States was really kept alive uh, by uh, those religious movements, yes, but also uh, by uh, the Central America Solidarity Organizations, which... I know there were many internationally, but in the U.S. it was particularly big because, of course, it was the U.S. that was the real bad actor in Nicaragua, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. Uh, the 50 Years Campaign was actually founded by, you know, uh, NGOs in Washington and the Bay Area, um, Friends of the Earth, uh, Development Gap, International Rivers Network. But it was the mobilization came and it became a network when we reached out to all these these other groups, and that's where uh, the real energy came from, and we were able to go beyond. And to return to your earlier question, Max, what really kind of tipped the scales from the time when we were 100 people marching in a circle around the IMF uh, to, uh, to having thousands, um, it, it probably really came with Seattle, to be honest, and, and, the, and the involvement of the trade union movements. Mm. And, and just to add another contrast, uh, uh, quite a contrast in some ways, uh, uh, the, uh, another pillar of the movement that we shouldn't forget, even though it wasn't always easy, was the anarchists. And uh, in the U.S., I, I often thought that when they scheduled the WTO meetings in Seattle, like they were trying to sabotage them because Seattle was a very strong union city. It was the biggest city where a lot of the forest activism was going on. Uh, you know, the, the anarchist movements we worked with, we would labor to create agreements on how we would work together because everything is, is processed and, and with them. It's quite hard to work with yes. an anarchist. It, it, can be. My experience. it can be. But, uh, but they were invaluable allies and they were, they, they were ideologically very clear on what they were doing, even those who practiced what we came to call property destruction on the streets of Seattle were doing so with a very thought out idea of why they were doing it. It wasn't vandalism in in the ordinary sense. Saren, I enjoyed geeking up learning about you and 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 the and the crazy things you've said over the years and done. But one thing I was really interested in reading about was something that Naomi Klein actually uh, wrote in The Nation. And she was talking about 2001 in Porto Alegre when when you, Naomi Klein, many other activists around the world come together for the first World Social Forum. You talk about how it's the coming out party for the existence of serious thinking about alternatives. Was this, do you look at, do you look at this time as real, as a real kind of peak in, well, in recent yeah. activism? No, I mean, the World Social Forum was an incredibly exciting 
idea because it was going to be all of the progressive and radical uh, political groups. The only rule was that you, you couldn't support armed violence uh, in your political beliefs. And of course, we weren't trying to get the right wing involved. But all of these groups coming together uh, with translation, however good or bad it actually ended up being, um, uh, in one place to discuss these ideas. I mean, there was an elaborate structure, which in the end nobody really understood. It was all these Brazilian intellectuals putting it together. But the spirit was amazing. Mm. And we had people from around the world. And this first World Social Forum was... Uh, uh, we were deliberately challenging Davos. It was held at the same time as the World Economic Forum, as it was for many years after that. Yes, and the and the World Social Forum, you know, taking place at the same time as Davos, taking on Davos, is a real inspiration to the work of the Fight Inequality Alliance uh, today and the Global Week of Protest Against Inequality that takes place during Davos. So the World Social Forum is a real inspiration. So listen, guys, let me ask you, be honest, do you think over the years you might have mellowed just a bit? Soren, you don't seem to have mellowed. Well, no, I, I think probably uh, temperamentally I have. Um, but uh, um, uh, no, in fact, you know, I'll confess it's uh, uh, when it became 75 years of the IMF and World Bank and I realized I had joined that campaign in 1994, 25 years beforehand, um, uh, it, it's, it's not a great feeling. I do think the institutions have slowly evolved. Um, the IMF now says things we couldn't imagine them saying. They don't do things differently, but they say things. The problem is that they are not held accountable. Well, and, and, and I think that, that that continues to really bother me. On my first trip to Kenya with Joki in 1997, after we got married, we were coming here and trying to do presentations to community groups and to young activists in Nairobi. Uh, about debt specifically and Joki had to kind of relearn how to or not or learn how to talk about those concepts in a different language uh, to talk to some of the community groups she talked to but I do remember talking to some of the young people we were talking to then and what they said to us was we don't want that debt canceled we want the president to have to pay that debt mm. back and we really labored to make the case that it wasn't the president who was going to be paying back that debt. Mm -hmm. But the emotional feel of people about mm -hmm. this was that the accountability of their own government was being eroded when we talked about the IMF and the World Bank as the baddest. Yeah. And, and in a country like Kenya, where the narrative of corruption is very, very strong and, and carries a, a lot of weight, you know, to get people to understand that there's a lot more going on, you know, that when you go to Kenyatta National Hospital and there are no medicines and there are no doctors or nurses or that people are sleeping to, to a bed, that there is an element of corruption, yes, but there's also this thing that where the World Bank and the IMF, and the IMF in particular was limiting what countries could spend on health and what they could spend on education. And so... Especially uh, hiring public services. Yeah, and, and so and the, all this came actually kind of wide open in Uganda where Uganda is fighting the HIV pandemic. They get money from the uh, Global Fund for 
HIV, TB, and malaria, and the IMF says you can't take the money. And by the way, all the policy papers, all the demonstrations, all the things that we had ever done to remove user fees had not worked. That was the moment where, you know, you had all of these people who in the U.S. Congress who said they cared about HIV AIDS and here the IMF was saying no. And for the first time, the U.S. Congress had these, you know, hearings. Uh, I was one of the people who testified uh, on the civil society side and uh, the U.S. executive directors at the World Bank and the IMF were instructed by Congress to oppose any policies or any projects that would include user fees for health and education. So Soren and Joki, we've heard so much inspiring stuff here from from those years, from the battles you won, from how you came together. It seems actually you're kind of repeating stuff that we're trying to figure out today that you accomplished back then. I'm really keen to hear as two seasoned activists What's your advice to young people today? And especially, where do you find hope with all the turmoil we see around the world? Well, I I think for me as an activist, actually hope is the thing that is in abundance. Whether you're looking at the climate strikes, whether you're looking at the Fight Inequality Alliance, uh, whether you're looking at the ways in here in Kenya, young people are organizing against extrajudicial killings, women are organizing uh, against sexual and gender-based violence and communities are fighting for their rights. There's a, a great deal of hope for me in in the activism that people do and I get, get a lot of inspiration f- uh, from that. Um, and I think for young people, I would say, you know, find something that you believe in and really fight for it, one. Um, learn. You know, I think that one of the things that um, that the, the millennials often are, are, are chided for and criticized for is that um, this there's often this attitude that nobody has done anything, and and you know maybe not the way they're doing it, maybe not through social media and all of that, but um, by to to re- listen and learn and read to see what other people have done and, you know, build the movement because alone you cannot do it. So I have a modicum of hope, uh, but I do think that the biggest challenge that that the world faces by far is the climate crisis. And uh, it's very hard for me to be uh, optimistic about humanity's capacity to think beyond 10 years ahead mm. in order to actually mm. take the steps. And I, I think that's been, you know, proven for the last 30 or 40 years with, in regards to the climate. So, so it's a daily struggle. Um, but, um, but, but seeing people mobilized in the U.S. in a way that, uh, in the political system that simply wasn't happening when I, uh, lived in the U.S. I mean, it happened, a bit in the 60s, but it was mostly against the political system. Mm-hmm. Now people are working within the political system and really trying to take it back from the corporate interests that have dominated both of the two big parties there. So I, I do find that. I find the rhetoric encouraging. It's still a lot 
of ground left to cover to get to where we need to, but things have opened up in a way that I simply couldn't conceive at the time that we left the U.S. in 2005. Yeah, so let me let me close by saying thanks. Uh, that was a fascinating interview, and uh, I learned a lot about both of you. I've known you both for the best part of 20 years, but uh, that was really good and great to hear from you. And thanks for opening up and telling us about your lives, because I think it's so important. I agree with you completely on history. I think millennials like Nabil have got no concept. All right, <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. Not interested all right. in the past. So I think it's important that they learn. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. So thank you. Thank you, guys. It was yeah, fun. No, thank you for... Thank you very much for welcoming us into your home and, and, and sharing this Anytime. with, with Anytime. us. Well, Max, I've, I've got my notepad out here. We covered a lot of ground, didn't we, with Njoki and Soren? We went from taking on debt in low-income countries to taking on dictators. We went from Seattle to communities here in Kenya. I'm pretty sure that sparked a few memories for you. Oh, certainly uh, amazing interview. The, the memories of the protests outside the World Bank and the IMF, tens of thousands of people, and the organisation that went in behind that, hearing the backstory for me was really interesting. And hearing the backstory as well of building broad coalitions, building literal broad churches, right? Because you've got the nuns on one side and you've got the anarchists on the other. That sounds pretty broad to me. Yeah, I mean, over the years, I've worked with anarchist groups, I've worked with the church, and, and I, I know from experience that bringing together such a, a, a disparate group behind a common cause, a common set of demands... That is no small achievement. No, and, and there's definitely a lot, especially a lot for my generation of millennials to learn. But let me tell you, Max, I do feel millennials got a little bit of a beating in that interview. Uh, you were outnumbered, it's true. As a sole representative here of, of the millennial generation worldwide, I've got to say there's, there's some good things going on around the world. And we've got some fantastic people on our look at AOC, look at Beth that we interviewed a few podcast interviews ago. There's some pretty good things happening, thanks to millennials. You're certainly doing a lot better than my generation. I mean, um, who have you got? What did, uh, you know? <laughs> no, no one springs to mind, but I mean, I have huge respect for, for, for the generation of today and the risks they're taking around the world from Lebanon to Chile, all over the world fighting inequality. So I think it is a truly inspiring times that we're living in, which is what Njoki said. Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, we, we do have to learn. We do have to look what others have done. I mean, I really, really found profound that point that Njoki made. You know, there is this superhero culture that exists within activism that thinks that it's just about me, that change comes down to my work. But actually, we do need to fight that individualism that exists within activism itself, don't we? Absolutely. We have to move beyond individualism to the collective and, and move beyond individual causes to common causes. Often people get into activism fighting for a particular thing, fighting police killings, fighting gender-based violence. But it's about that step where you, you move beyond that and you find common cause with others. That's when you really start to make a difference. Absolutely. And Joki, Soren, if you're listening, let me say a huge thanks again for joining us on Equals and, and immense solidarity with all that you're doing. Our next interview is a really exciting one. We're, we're talking to an academic who's a, who's a kick-ass academic who's worrying billionaires around the world. Yeah, Gabriel Zuckman, who's just uh, published uh, with Emmanuel Saez, a fantastic book, The Triumph of Injustice, which looks at slavery, it looks at taxation, it looks at abolishing billionaires, is really inspiring and it's making real waves in the US in particular. Brilliant. We really look forward to that. 
Look forward to you joining us next time. So this is part of the interview where I ask you to do subscribe to the podcast, do share it with your family, with your friends. And for the first time, I'm going to ask you to please give us a, a solid review, at least four stars. I think my solid would mean four, possibly five stars. Yeah. <laughs> do join us next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone.